You're listening to In My Father's House with our pastor and teacher, Mike Venezia, Senior Pastor of Harvest Christian Fellowship in New York City, New York. In my Father's house, there's a place for me. In my Father's house, where I long to be, oh, my heart will not be troubled. I remember what you said. With so many voices out there telling us that it's lawful to do this thing or lawful to do that thing, and you know, even the, the mores of the society, which are in constant contradiction to God's laws at times, who are we to believe? Are we to believe the Word of God or the popular opinion of the culture and the society in which we live today? Who can we believe? When well, we know what happened to Eve, she checked it out for herself. When Satan approached Eve in the garden, he asked her a simple question, and then doubt began to creep into her mind. As followers of Jesus, we must be able to discern what is truth and what is a lie. Satan comes to deceive us and make us think that God is a liar. In today's message, Pastor Mike will be sharing a story from Genesis and encouraging us with the importance of knowing the truth. We must take God at His word and tune out the lies of Satan and the culture around us. Now here's Pastor Mike in the book of Genesis chapter 50 as he begins his message, A Coffin in Egypt. In the book of Genesis, that would be chapter 50, in the last verse. And that'll serve as our text. So Genesis chapter 50 and verse 26, title is A Coffin in Egypt. Let's go ahead and read that text of scripture, and then we'll ask God's blessing on the remainder of our time together. So Genesis 50 and verse 26. So Joseph died, being 110 years old, and they embalmed him, and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. Father, we pray now that you bless our time together, God, as we, Lord, open up your word. Father, we appeal to the great teacher who is the Holy Spirit to that end. Father, we pray that this message would uh, minister to each one in a very relevant and personal kind of a way and uh, tailor to meet specific needs. Lord, encourage, strengthen, challenge, rebuke if necessary. God, I pray decisions would be made for Jesus this morning as Lord and Savior. Lord, just do a neat work here in this place. Father, we pray that we would have known that we've had a true encounter with you. So, Lord, please just make yourself available to us and be honored and glorified. God, thank you. Bless now. Let my words be your words. For we ask all of these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. So once again, a coffin in Egypt. Now, at first glance, you may be thinking what a strange way for such a powerful, important, instructive 
first book of the Bible to conclude. And, and if you, know, you were thinking that, you, you know, the truth of the matter is you would actually be uh, correct. I mean, it could have concluded with the Egyptians bestowing great honor and adulation upon Joseph for being their savior during the time of famine, or it could have concluded with some prophetical announcements concerning the Hebrews' future, right? I mean, if I was going to write the book of the Bible, and thank God that I'm not the writer of this book of the Bible, all scripture is given by inspiration of God, and uh, so really you have to put the Holy Spirit behind it. You know, either or of those two uh, suggestions, as far as I'm concerned, would have probably been more uh, appropriate. You know, something a little bit more exciting, something a little bit more upbeat. But what do we have here in the concluding verse of chapter 50, in the concluding verse of this book of the Bible? So Joseph died being 110 years old, and they embalmed him, and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. Yawn, 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 you know, kind of a thing. Well, I mean, this is not how the book of Genesis began, right? So let's go back just for a moment, if you will, just to make this point. Go back some year ago, <laughs> right? And think about how the book of Genesis began. The first two chapters, for example, we have there recorded for us the glorious record of creation coming into existence. All of the sky, for example, the earth, the plants, the animals, the first man, Adam, the first woman, uh, Eve. And then God pronouncing upon all of that he created there in the physical universe, it's all good. And so what an exciting, glorious beginning to this book of the Bible. But then, if you remember a year ago, as we moved into chapter 3, which described for us the fall of mankind, that is the fall of Adam and Eve, their disobedience and eating of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which was forbidden them by God. The result of that brought death. And then if you move on to chapter 5, like say, for example, in verses 5, and then the following verses, we read, all the days that Adam lived, 930 years, and then he died. And then you go to the next verse of Scripture, and we read, All the days that Seth lived, 912 years, and then he died. And then you just go through that whole chapter, and it's just like one after another. They died, they died, they died. And so it is at the end of this book of the Bible as we read about Joseph. In his lifetime, Joseph had been used to deliver most of the civilized world from starvation during those seven years of famine. He could not save himself. Now, this coffin in Egypt is not insignificant. It would remain there in Egypt for some 400 years and serve up these important reminders to God's people. And as I've said time and time again, listen, nothing that God does or that is recorded for us in his word is insignificant. And such is the case with Joseph's coffin there in Egypt. The prominent place it has at the end of this magnificent book of the Bible is for an exact purpose. God had something in mind here. Okay, so that should raise the question, 
What does it teach us? What lessons does it leave behind? Well, there's a couple of things that I want to draw your attention to, actually three. And all of these three things that we're going to be addressing become our points of this message. The first lesson that we learn from this coffin in Egypt is that simply death is inevitable. You know, as a cross-reference for this in the book of Hebrews in chapter 9 and verse 27, we are told that man is appointed or destined once to die and then the judgment. So what do we take away from that? Well, listen, we only get one shot at life. Isn't that true? So we better get it straight the first time. There's no such thing as reincarnation, I'm sorry. There's no such thing as purgatory. Don't you wish there was? I mean, you could live like hell and then your relatives could just pray out of purgatory into heaven. That would be kind of cool, right? And, uh, well, I don't know actually how cool that would be, but... It's not true. It's not correct. The Bible certainly doesn't teach that. It teaches otherwise. What does it say? Man is appointed once to die and then the judgment. There's no second chances, folks. So you better get it right. So when the Israelites looked at Joseph's coffin for over that extended period of time, for some 400 years before they were actually delivered out of Egypt, they were reminded of that point, death is inevitable. And, you know, I would suppose that that coffin of Joseph, seeing how important he was within that nation, not only to the Egyptians, but also to the Hebrews as well, it was probably placed in a prominent location, more than likely in the town square. And so as they passed by, going from one place to another, they would be reminded of the fact, as they looked at that coffin, death is inevitable. Listen, no matter what our position in life, no matter what our accomplishments, our notoriety, how deeply we are loved or will be missed, or how much we have been depended upon, the truth of the matter is, gang, you cannot cheat death. When our time comes, that's it. You know, one writer put it this way, and I wanted to quote him, the glories of our birth and state are shadows, not substantial things. There is no armor against fate. Death lays his icy hands even on kings. And so it is. That's the truth. Listen, we need to live with that kind of an awareness It's appointed once for man to die and then the judgment. We need to understand that. We need to prepare for that day when, in fact, we will stand before God. And in that knowledge and in possessing that knowledge, we we just trust that it will guide our decisions, the choices that we make accordingly. Listen, gang, this is not all there is. But in Psalm 90, in verse... Uh, 10, and then again in verse 12, it says, the days of our lives are 70 years. The psalmist is thinking about the lifespan of a human being. So the days of our lives are 70 years, and if by reason of strength, they are 80 years, possibly, yet their boast is only labor and sorrow, for it is soon cut off, and then we fly away. And then in verse 12, You know, considering that truth, 
And then he comes to this conclusion or makes his appeal unto God. So teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. Listen, folks, we only get one shot at this, one opportunity. Again, make sure that you get it right because death is inevitable. Now, the next lesson that the coffin serves up for us, and that is God is true. He speaks the truth. His word is true. As I mentioned before, as I referenced in Genesis chapter 3, where we have the record of the fall of mankind, Adam and Eve disobeying God, eating of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, the fall of mankind forever, think about that now, altered the state of purity and innocence portrayed in the first two chapters of the book of Genesis. And up until that point, think about it, there was no sin, there was no shame, there was no guilt, there was just this wonderful and intimate fellowship, communion, and relationship that Adam and Eve had with God. Man, you know what? I've heard it said that, boy, I can't wait to get to heaven because I'm going to give Adam and Eve a a part of my mind for what they had done. But listen, you know what? If you would have been there in the Garden of Eden, if you were the first man, if you were the first woman, you would have fallen into the same sin that they did, more than likely, right? And so you can't blame them. This is just an unfortunate part of man's human nature. So I don't know if we could really you know, put the blame on them. But think about it. There would be no sin. We'd live forever. We wouldn't have to get up at 6 o'clock in the morning, get on public transportation to go to work, right? Travel like an hour or two hours to get to our place. You know, none of that. But again, if you were the first man, the first woman, you would have probably you know, fallen into the same sin that they did. So how did man fall? Well, the devil successfully tempting the first man, the first woman, to disobey and sin against God. Now, let's trace their steps, if you will. Let's go back to Genesis chapter 2. The Bible tells us that we're not ignorant of the devices of the devil, of Satan. He only uses a few different ways, you know, to trick us, to entice us into sin. But just to make the point, let's trace their steps. And as I've already mentioned, we're not ignorant of his devices. Notice what God said, first of all, let's set the stage here, in Genesis chapter 2, in verses 16 and 17. After he had created the physical universe, and then put the first man, the first woman in it, and then instructed them, you know, it's all yours to enjoy. He said, subdue the earth, and then also be fruitful and multiply. It was all theirs to enjoy. Man, the perfect environment they were placed in. But there was only one stipulation, right? And the Lord God commanded them, the man, verses 16 and 17, saying, Of every tree of the garden you may freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. And wouldn't you know human nature, right? You know, the equivalent of that would be like, you know, you're walking down the street and you see a sign that says wet paint, right? You know you got to go over there and just, you know, if no one's around, and just check it out for yourself and put your finger right on it to see if, if in fact, the, the, the sign is true. What is, what's up with human nature? Why do we do stupid things like that, right? And, uh, I mean, they have many different trees 
that they could have eaten of and enjoyed, right? Multiple trees that they could have ate uh, from or ate of, but they chose the one tree that was prohibited them by God. Okay, so the Lord lays it out. The devil comes along. Now we're trying to trace the steps of how they fell into this sin, how he enticed them. And then in chapter 3, in verse 1, the devil comes along, the serpent, who was more cunning than any beast of the field, which the Lord God made. And he said to the woman, Has God indeed said, You shall not eat of every tree of the garden? So what is he seeking to do here? It's a slur that he places upon God's goodness. You know, he's suggesting that God is withholding some good thing from them. He's seeking to put doubt in Eve's mind. But notice, you know, Eve initially got it correct. Because notice her response in verse 3 of chapter 3. She goes on to declare, But of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God had said, You shall not eat, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. And that should have been the end of it right there, right? So she answered correctly. But then the devil blatantly contradicted God's statement, and Eve is presented now with a crisis. Verses 4 and 5. Then the serpent said to the woman, You'll not surely die, for God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Okay, so put yourself in Eve's shoes for a moment. What was she to do at this point? I mean, up until this point, the only statements, the only instructions she had about the nature of things came from who? Came from God, right? She had never doubted him before. There was absolutely no reason to. But now there's this impressive serpent telling her God was not truthful. God was withholding something good from her, deliberately withholding something good from her. God said, you will surely die, but the devil said, no way. He really didn't mean that. So here's the dilemma. Who could be trusted? Who could be believed? And don't you find it interesting that this is the same ultimate question that confronts the human race today. Who can you believe? With so many voices out there telling us that it's lawful to do this thing or lawful to do that thing, and you know, even the, the mores of the society, which are in constant contradiction to God's laws at times, who are we to believe? Are we to believe the word of God or the popular opinion of the culture and the society in which we live today? Who can we believe? Well, we know what happened to Eve. She checked it out for herself. She checked out the tree. She investigated the tree. What did she find? She saw that it was good for food. It was pleasing to the eye. It was desirable for gaining wisdom. Now think about that. What do we have here? Well, it falls into those categories, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eye, and the pride of life which we are warned against in 1 John in chapter 2 and verse 16. Write that down as a cross-reference. 1 John chapter 2 and verse 16, where we're warned about those things. The things that are in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eye, the pride of, of life. Those are the things that the enemy uses, right, to entice us to sin. 
Well, the story goes, she took, she ate, and she gave some to her husband, and he ate. She thought she could disregard God's word on the basis of her own experience, which so many people are guilty of today, and she was absolutely wrong. It wasn't all relevant to her. You know, that's what people believe today. Hey, it's all relevant to me. You know, it doesn't matter that I, that I, uh, you know, I rob for my employer. I mean, because after all, he doesn't pay me what I'm worth. I have to put in extra hours. I'm, I'm not getting paid for those extra hours. So, you know, he, you know, he doesn't even know that I'm <laughs> dipping into the till and taking, you know, what is rightfully mine anyway. It's all relevant to me and to my situation, you know. You get pregnant, you can abort the child because how is it going to affect me? Not even consider, it's all relevant to me. How does that thing affect me, you see? That's the problem. We don't listen to or obey God's laws. God's instructions. She thought that she could eat of the tree, but the truth of the matter was she couldn't, right? And she certainly didn't increase in wisdom, and that wasn't that the hook that drew her in by the devil? You'll be, in the day that you eat, you'll become like God, knowing good from evil. Now, why would anyone want to know anything about evil in the first place? I mean, good I can understand but not evil, right? And, uh, and I'll pick up on that in just a moment. But she died, spirit, soul, and then eventually body. You know, the real intellect, think about this, is someone, the real intelligent person, the, the person who is wise, is someone who sees the world around them through God's eyes, who draws good conclusions, who makes wise and good decisions. Listen, today, think about Eve. Where is Eve today? We know where Joseph is. We know the impact that he had on the lives of so many people, even on us. Considering Joseph in, here in this book of the, the Bible has become sort of like a mini-series within our Genesis series, hasn't it? We've learned so many wonderful lessons as we've considered Joseph's life. You know, in comparison to many of the other characters in the Bible, Joseph was without flaw, without sin, really. I mean, you know, you think of Father Abraham. He's recommended to us as the father of the faith. And you would think that, you know, here's someone that we should follow in his footsteps and emulate the things that he did. But, you know, how many times in our series in the book of Genesis have we found Abraham lapsing into unbelief, not trusting God? For example, his wife, Sarah, and and lying about her identity and getting himself into all kinds of different trouble as was true of many of the other characters that we were introduced to here in our uh, series in the book of Genesis. But that wasn't true of Joseph. In my father's house There's a place for me In my father's house Where I long Here at In My Father's House, we're going through the book of Genesis, where the story of the beginning is told. God made light and said that it's good. God made plants and trees and said that it's good. God made animals on land and in the sea, and he said that it's good. And then God made man, and he said that it is very good. 
Creation didn't stop at the end of the sixth day. Creating is an inherent part of who God is and what He does. Look around you. What do you see? New plants, new trees, new animals, each one unique in how it grows. And God is still saying it is good. God is in the business of creating new people out of old ones, undoing the inherent brokenness. When you were born again, a new creation, God looked at you and said that you are very good. He has made you new and restored you to the place you were designed to fill. You've been listening to In My Father's House with Pastor Mike Venizio. This is a ministry out of Harvest Christian Fellowship in Midtown Manhattan. We'd love to see you here. You can find all the information you need, including service times, on our website, harvestnyc.org. That's harvestnyc.org. If you're listening outside of Manhattan, we'd love to know that, too. Please send us a quick note at harvestnyc at verizon.net. That's harvestnyc at verizon.net. It's a great encouragement to Pastor Mike and the team at In My Father's House to hear where these messages are being listened to. We hope you'll come back and see us again, because there's no better place to be than in my father's house.